All right, well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you today. I hope that you had a great Sunday morning. Hey, before we begin, I just got to say what Jake and Ashley already said on the video, which was what you got done yesterday at the church was so incredible. I am so excited about what we have in store for us and how much you got accomplished. So real quick, can we just give it up for the women and men who came out yesterday and built all that stuff? Yeah. For real, our staff team was like, how many of these days do you think we're going to need? Like two or three to get all this stuff built? And you did it in like half the time of one day. And so uh, really, it was really just incredible. So way to go. Thanks for coming out to do that. Now today, we're in part three of this series that we've been in for the last few weeks. This originated as a North Point series with our friends down in Atlanta. But the title is, You're Not the Boss of Me. And the subtitle kind of says it all. It's how to say no to the emotion that compete for control. We all have some emotions that try to compete for control of our lives, and so that's kind of what we're talking about in this series. Now, if you missed either of the parts of the series so far, you can jump on the app or the website. You can just Google it, and you'll find this series, and you can get caught up with us as we're in part three today. Now, as we begin today, I want to ask a, a kind of a question. Have any of you seen these surveys that come along occasionally where people are asked the question, what would you do if you knew you would get away with it? Like, have you seen these surveys, right? Sometimes maybe you've seen the Reddit threads, like there are Reddit threads committed and, uh, you know, kind of around this question of what would you do if you knew you would get off scot-free? What would you do if you knew there would be no consequences, no repercussions, no fallback? What would you do if you knew you could get away with it? And the answers to those surveys and the answers that people give to those questions are always slightly terrifying. Are they not? Right? It's terrifying. You're like, oh my goodness, like who, I mean, right? It's just scary to think what people would acknowledge they would do. And, and part of what's so scary in those moments is that people's hearts are exposed. And so just to make sure we're all on the same page, why don't you go ahead and turn to the person next to you and just answer the question, what would you do if you knew you could get away? No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Don't, do not answer that question. Uh, if you're new to Heartland, you're like, whoa, I'm leaving right now. No. Don't answer the question. We can all kind of guess. Uh, but, but that is what's scary about those surveys, is that what it does is it exposes people's hearts. Like they're being authentic because they're being anonymous, right? And now luckily, people don't do those things because we've all learned to monitor our behavior. We said a couple weeks ago that we all learn to monitor our behavior as we grow up because we want to get job interviews and because we want to get jobs and we want to be able to keep our jobs. We all learn to monitor our behavior because we want to get dates, and we want to get second dates, and we want to get third dates, right? And so we learn to monitor our behavior, but nobody ever really teaches us how to monitor our hearts. In fact, a lot of times, culture encourages us to simply follow your heart. Is that a good idea? Is that good advice? Well, I guess it depends on what's in there, right? This is what Jesus had to say about it. In Matthew 15, Jesus is credited with saying, don't you see that whatever enters your mouth, whatever goes into your mouth, goes into the stomach and then it passes out the body? And we would say, yeah, we see that all the time. And he continues and he says, but the things that come out of a person's mouth, the things that come out of your mouth come from the heart and these things defile them. He says it's the things that come out of our mouth in those unguarded moments or sometimes even in our guarded moments. Those things that come out of our mouth come from our heart. 
And it's because they come from our heart that when they come out of our mouth, these are the things that have the potential to put us at odds with God. These are the things that have the potential to put us at odds with God because these are the things that have the potential to put us at odds with other people. And one of the quickest ways to be at, find yourself at odds with God is to be at odds and to hurt or, or, or offend people who God loves. And so Jesus says, look, it's not what goes into your mouth by accident that God is consumed with. It's not what what goes into your mouth by accident that God's concerned about. God's not small. God's not petty. God cares about what's coming out of your mouth because what comes out of your mouth is a reflection of what's actually in your heart. And this explains what some of us have experienced. This explains why sometimes a, a, a seemingly otherwise very nice people will say or do things on occasion that seem completely out of character. And they do it, or they they say it, and it's like, where did that come from? In fact, you should pay attention to this if you're in a serious dating relationship with somebody. If you're in a dating relationship with somebody, and on occasion they have a propensity to say something or do something that seems out of character, and once kind of the emotions have calmed down, they say, you know, I don't know where that came from. You need to lean in and say, well, I do. It came from your heart, came out, because that's what's in there. And so what we're learning to do in this series is apply something that King Solomon said. Solomon lived 3,000 years before Jesus, or about 3,000 years ago, about 1,000 years before Jesus, and he wrote a lot of what we consider now the, the Old, Old Testament, or the Old Covenant books and documents. And one of the documents that he penned most of is the book of Proverbs. And in Proverbs, this book filled with these little nuggets of wisdom, just one right after another. Along the way, in chapter 4, this is what he says about our hearts. He says, above all else, that is a powerful way to start, above all else, he says, guard your heart for or because everything you do flows from it. He says, above all else, meaning the most important thing you can do, including all the important things that I'm about to tell you to do in this text, he says, the most important thing you can do is pay attention to what is going on in your heart because everything you say and everything you do comes from the overflow of your heart. And so we've learned to to monitor our behaviors, but we want to learn to monitor what's going on inside of us. We want to learn to pay attention to what we're feeling and to ask some good questions about where those feelings are coming from and if those are appropriate feelings, if those are helpful feelings, if those feelings are going to direct us in a positive or a healthy way, or if those are, those are feelings that we need to do something with. Monitoring what goes on in our hearts has two components to it. On one hand, we need to clean out the toxins that are in there, And then at the same time, we need to monitor our heart to prevent other toxins from taking root, from taking place, from kind of taking up resident in our heart, if you will. And so in this series, this is what we're doing. We're looking at these things. We're talking about these emotions that kind of fill our hearts and try to compete for control of our life. Two weeks ago, we kind of set the series up. Last week, we talked about envy. In the future weeks, we're going to talk about some incredible emotions that compete for control of our, all of our lives. But today, I want to talk about something that applies to all of us, especially people who find themselves in church, for people who are trying to understand what Jesus taught and how to live. For us especially, this is one of the emotions that competes for control of our lives. But I think it's true for all of us, no matter where you are coming from or how long you've lived or how much you go to church, we've all lived long enough to accumulate some of this stuff. Today, I want us to talk about guilt. Guilt is the emotion associated with acknowledging when we've done something wrong. Guilt is that emotion that we feel 
that, we, that happens when we acknowledge, even if it's just to ourselves, that we failed to live up to some standard. Maybe it's just our own standard, but we acknowledge we've done something wrong, and that's when we feel guilt. Now, there are a few different types of guilt. One type of guilt is false guilt. We're not going to spend much time talking about false guilt because false guilt is the guilt you feel when you didn't really do anything wrong or when what you did was not a big deal, but for whatever reason, for whatever unhealthy reason, you're feeling a tremendous amount of guilt, like you're finding it impossible to move on. That's false guilt, and you need to deal with that, but that's kind of for another day. That's not what we're talking about today. What we want to talk about today is the type of guilt that you feel when you did actually do something wrong. There was something that you did that violated God's standard of, of, of living. There was something that violated your own standard of living. There's something that dinged your conscience, and so now you're feeling guilty because of it. And if you don't deal with it, eventually it will start to dominate your thinking. It will start to dominate your heart. And then there's even another level of guilt that even goes deeper than that. There's the level of guilt where you did something that was so wrong, even in your own heart, you recognize that it was so wrong, you cannot face the guilt. And so instead, you try to just push it down, shove it down. You try to, to kind of push it into the recesses of your heart where you don't have to acknowledge it because for you to acknowledge it, it would be overwhelming to you. We've all experienced that. And whenever it comes back up, because guilt doesn't stay down for very long, whenever it pops back up, we all do the same thing. We retreat to the narrative that we've created that allows us to live without feeling overwhelmed by our guilt. And we all have created some type of narrative for those things. We say, well, I, you know, I was, I, was, I was only 20. That makes it okay, right? I was only 20. Well, I was 29, but I was in my 20s, right? We say, well, I was a freshman. I mean, like, this is what everybody does when they're freshmen. We say, yeah, I know, but, but it was my first job, and I've learned since then. I won't do it again, right? We say, yes, I know, I did it, I'm guilty, but my dad was that way, and my grandfather was that way. I think Adam was probably that way. We create a narrative that allows us to, to not be overwhelmed by our guilt. But if we're not careful, we, we realize that this is what happens, and this is why we're going to talk about it as uncomfortable as it is, guilt, either denying it, or being defined by it simply empowers it. This is why we have to talk about this as uncomfortable as it is. Because denying our guilt or excusing it and pretending that it's not there or being defined by it throws us off balance in our relationships. It becomes the boss of us because it consumes how we feel and how we feel eventually comes out. And the reason that guilt does that is because guilt creates what we could call a debt-debtor relationship. Now, when you've done something wrong, especially to someone who's close to you, but really to anybody, it creates a debt-debtor relationship where you owe them something. Because there is a sense in which you took something from them. Every wrong committed against someone else does that in essence. It takes something from them. Maybe it takes their innocence, or it takes their their childhood, it takes their, their money or their reputation, it takes their self-esteem, it takes something from them, and now you are in debt to them. And we even have terminology to, to, to describe this. We say things all the time, like, we say things like, I owe her an apology. Right? We, we recognize that we owe them something because we've taken something from them. 
The problem is that we don't know how to pay them back. And so we'll say that. We'll say, I don't know how to make it up to them. I don't know how to come out of this debt-debtor relationship. I don't know what to do with it. I recognize I owe her something, but I, I don't know how to make it up to them. But here's the tricky thing about guilt is that we don't experience guilt and we don't carry guilt as a debt. It doesn't feel like a financial debt to us. It doesn't have the same feeling in our hearts. We feel or we experience guilt instead as a weight. And we carry this weight around with us and this weight throws us off balance. And if you have any unresolved guilt in your life today, you know what I'm talking about. Because you carry that with you. And it it makes you feel off balance. You don't know what to do with that, but you know you're not on the solid footing that you want to have. Your life is not in balance. Your heart is not in balance. And so maybe as a result of something that you feel guilty about, it's got an impact on your relationships. And on one hand, maybe it's causing you to be too aggressive in relationships. Or maybe on the other hand, it's caused you to be too timid in your relationships. Maybe your unresolved guilt is overflowing into your parenting. And on one hand, maybe you're too restrictive of a parent because of your guilt. Or maybe you go the other way and you become too permissive as a parent because of your guilt. But we all know what this is like because the weight that we carry around with us throws us off balance. And when we, when we do resolve our guilt, we talk about it as a weight as well. We'll say things like, I just feel like a weight has been lifted off of me. And it feels so good, doesn't it? When you get that, that weight lifted off of you, when your guilt is resolved, you know it feels like a weight has been lifted off of you. But here's the, the, the tricky thing. If you don't resolve that guilt, it follows you around. Like maybe you pick that guilt up at work, but you're going to carry that weight back home. Maybe you picked up your weight in college, but you carry that weight into your present season of life. Maybe you picked up that weight while you were out of town, but you bring it back home with you. And the really tricky thing about, about guilt is that if it goes unresolved for long enough, eventually guilt evolves into anger. We became, become angry people, and anger starts to become the boss of us. And we'll talk about more about anger in a few weeks, but, but guilt becomes anger. But here's the, the problem is that, that guilty people almost never make this this association. They almost never connect the dots. They don't realize that they're feeling angry because they failed to live up to their expectations and because they failed to live up to their own expectations, now suddenly no one can live up to their expectations. The truth is that they're mad and they're angry with themselves, but because they haven't dealt with it, now they're quick to become angry and upset with other people who failed to live up to their expectations as well. And the tricky thing about guilt is that we don't want to face it, and there's a good reason that we don't want to face it. We don't want to face our guilt because to acknowledge our guilt leaves us simply standing condemned. It does. It leaves us condemned. The reality is we really don't have any recourse for our guilt. There's no way for us to go back and undo the past. You can't go back and be in college freshman again. You can't unsay the things that you said. You can't undo the things that you did to them. You can't be un unfaithful. You can't return whatever it was that you took from them. And so we just try to stuff it down and move on. But the problem with that is that that doesn't really work either because your past wasn't designed to be left behind. Your past and my past 
The past was not designed to be left behind. It's a part of your story. It's a part of your journey. And so your past was designed to be carried with you through life. And so as much as we want to distance ourselves from it, if it goes yet unresolved, we will carry it with us forever. But there is some good news. And this is the good news is why I spent the first 15 minutes trying to depress you as much as I possibly could, right? We're all really depressed now. Like, thanks, John, for bringing up all that stuff. I thought I had stuffed down far enough. No, there is good news. There is hope, right? There is a third option. You do not have to go through your life either denying your guilt or being defined by your guilt. Jesus offers us a third approach. He offers us a third option. And it is so good. And it is so beautiful. And the person who put it into words best is the person who I want us to look at this morning in Romans chapter 8. But before we read this, I want, I just, I want to say to those of you especially who grew up in church, man, I hope what we read as it relates to your guilt, I hope that when we read this, you will not hear me just reading words from the Bible. And if you're new to church and you don't have much use for the Bible, I really hope that you don't hear me just reading words from the Bible. Because what we're going to read are the words of a man named the Apostle Paul. But the Apostle Paul steps onto the pages of history as Saul of Tarsus. And Saul of Tarsus had made it his life's mission to round up and arrest and in some cases beat and in many cases imprison and in some cases execute innocent women and men who had decided to become followers of Jesus and, and Jesus' teachings. And he did it all in the name of God. I'm telling you, the Apostle Paul carried more regret and more guilt and more shame than any of us could imagine. He carried more guilt than all of us combined. Because the Apostle Paul would eventually join the community that he had spent his, his, his adulthood persecuting. He would eventually come face to face with the boys and girls who had grown up and who knew he had been the one who had had their parents arrested and beaten and imprisoned and in some cases executed. He was the one who had heard their screams. He was the one who had made them say goodbye to their children. And now he was joining the community of the people he had executed their relatives of. And the Apostle Paul knew what it was like to carry more guilt and shame because he had actually done these things than we can ever begin to wrap our minds around. And yet, here's the incredible thing about Paul. Paul did not run from his past. He did not try to hide his past. He did not try to sand the rough edges off of his past. We know Paul's story because Paul is the one who tells us his story. And so Paul says, listen, this, I get it. I'm, I'm with you in this. But I have found another way that Jesus came to offer. And so he sits down towards the end of his life and he writes this document to the Christians who are living in Nero's Rome. And this is what he says at the beginning of chapter 8 to them. And this is what he says at the beginning of chapter 8 to you. He says, therefore... He comes after talking about all the guilt, all the sin, all the shame, all of it in chapter 7. And then he begins chapter 8 by saying, Therefore, there is now no condemnation. He says, Therefore, there is now. There is something new. 
It is a new day. God has offered something new. God has done something new. He says there is now no condemnation. He says that there is a place where you can live. There is a place, there is a space where you can exist, where you, you are not condemned where God has removed that from you, where you are guilty, but you are no longer condemned. And he tells us where this place is. He tells us where we find this. As he continues in verse 1, he says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says, For those who are willing to acknowledge the condemning truth of their actions and their past, who are willing to come before God and just simply acknowledge it to him, and to surrender their lives to the lordship, or in the words of this series, surrender their life to the bossship of their heavenly father, to those people, there is now no condemnation. He says when you do that, you are able to have that weight lifted off of you once and for all. You are able to regain your balance, and you are able to live free in Christ Jesus. How is this possible, Paul? He says, I'm getting to it. Stay with me. Therefore, he says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Jesus Christ, through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. He says that through Christ Jesus, through having a relationship with him, through embracing what God the Father has done for us through Jesus, stepping into that relationship with God, he says the, the law that, uh, that gives life, and we'll come back to that in a minute, that law has set you free, that spirit has set you free from the other law, the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death is simply this, that when you sin, you're stuck. When you hurt somebody, it's done. You're guilty. And you really are. You're just guilty. And you're guilty forever because there's no way for you to undo it on your own. You cannot go back and repay them. You cannot make it right with them. You can deny it. You can grovel in it. But you're stuck. Guilt is the boss of you. But he says that through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set you free from that. And so how? How did he do this? Verse 3. He tells us, for the law... He says, for what the law was powerless to do. Okay, just think of any law, what the law is powerless to do. He says, think of any law, the federal law, right? The state law, the municipal law, the county laws, whatever it is. Even if it's just your own law, the law that you hold in your heart, the, the law of your own conscience, no matter what law we're talking about, they all do the same thing. What the law does is the law sets the bar for as low as you can go. And the law says, you cannot go any lower than this, and if you do, you are condemned. And in some instances, the law prescribes the punishment as a result of that. That's what the law can do. But Paul said, there is something that the law cannot do. Think about this for a second. What is it that the law cannot do? The law is pretty good at doing what it does. But what the law cannot do is the law cannot restore you. The law cannot redeem you. The law cannot set you free from your past. The law is just a constant reminder that you're guilty. Good luck with that. Have fun with that. Do your best to pack it away and just kind of shove it into the recesses of your heart. But you're guilty. That's all the law can do. 
But what Paul discovered was that Jesus came to offer us something different. Jesus came to offer another way forward. Jesus came to offer us the opportunity to stand before our Heavenly Father and to know that that, that God has done what the law could not do. He continues in verse 3, he says, For what the law was powerless to do, how beautiful is this, God did. What the law was powerless to do, God has done. And he says, this is, this is what God did. Verse, verse 3, for what the law was powerless to do, God did by sending his own son. He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering for us. This is how God did it. He sent his only begotten son. He sent his son. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is why this is such a big deal, because this is what Jesus came to do. He didn't just come. God didn't just send Jesus so that he could show us how to live, although he did that. He didn't come just to show us how to love, although he did that. He didn't come just to show us what the heavenly father was like, although he did that. He sent his son so that he could, he could, he could be a, uh, a sin offering for us. So that he could become in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering on our behalf. He came so that we wouldn't be trapped between denying our guilt or being defined by our guilt. He came to to take all of that on himself. He came and he carried it on his own shoulders to the cross. Do you know what he took when he went to the cross for you? You say, yeah. Yeah. He took my sin, right? Yeah, he took your sin, but it's even better than that. When he took your sin to the cross, he also took all of the condemnation that your sin brought with it. And so as a result, Christ has taken all condemnation. He's taken the divine condemnation. He's taken our self-condemnation, that condemnation that we feel ourselves. He's taken all of it. He's taken all condemnation. He's taken any condemnation that other people could put on you. Don't put that on me because Christ has taken it for me. He set you free from that. And when Paul recognized this and stepped into this, it changed the rest of his life forever. He had the most dramatic 180 we could imagine. And so at the end of his life, after he spent the rest of his life trying to tell people about Jesus and trying to share this good news with them, he sits down to write this letter and he says, Church, Christians, listen to me. Those of you who, are, who, who are, think you're guilty, Those of you who know you're guilty, those of you who are nowhere near as guilty as I am, those of you who who think you could even be more guilty than me, he says, listen, in Christ, there is now no condemnation. God says, come to me, bring your guilt to me with your eyes wide open, no stories, no excuses, no narratives, no blaming, and God says, listen, together We will acknowledge that, yes, you are guilty. Like, you did it. You broke his heart. You betrayed her. You you lied to get your way. You acted irresponsibly. You knew better, but you did it anyway. So let's just own the fact. Let's just own the truth. Let's accept the truth that, yes, you are guilty, but you are not condemned. God says, To those of you who are in Christ, he says, when I see you, I don't see that. And I don't want you to see that either. 
And in fact, I don't want you to see him that way. I want you to see him the way that I see him. And I want you to see her the way that I see her because I don't see that any longer when you are in Christ Jesus. And then he finishes with verse 4. And it says, And so he, talking about God, condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. He says, and so God did something. God did condemn something, but he didn't condemn you. God condemned sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, and he did it so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. The righteous requirement of the law can be met fully in you, even though you have been guilty. God says you're not guilty any longer. I've taken that guilt off of you. I've removed that weight. And so what this means is that God restores you to a guiltless status. God chooses to to love you and to interact with you and to respond to you like you are not guilty because you're not. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, what does all this mean? Like, is this just some, like, you know, crazy theological concept, John? You know, I mean, you kind of skimmed over to those verses. Like, I'm not sure I fully understood. Look, I get that because the Apostle Paul was some, somewhat complex in his writing. This is as deep as it gets. I mean, this is just some difficult stuff sometimes to wrap our minds around. But if you're asking the question, is this a big deal? Let me just simply answer, yes, this is a monumental deal. This is a really big deal. This is a really big deal for all of us. This is a really big deal for those of you who made a decision to become a follower of Jesus decades ago. This is a really big deal for those of you who have never acknowledged Jesus as Lord, who have not decided to hand the bossship of your life over to him. And so as we kind of try to apply these four verses to our life, as we try to, 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 to kind of uh, ingrain this in our thinking so that we understand what the Apostle Paul was trying to get at, what God was trying to reveal for us through Paul, I want to give you three implications. These are three implications of the verses in the passage that we just read. But before we do, before I do that, before we get into the implications of these these verses. I want to take a second to just talk to you, specifically those of you who have never made a decision to to kind of come before God and say, God, I want want this. Listen, I'm not going to pressure you to do anything, right? I'm not going to ask you to come down front or anything like that this morning, but I just don't want you to leave here without fully and clearly understanding the offer that is on the table before you. Because I think so often people who aren't around church a lot and don't really understand the Christian faith. I think that a lot of times people misunderstand what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to offer you a life-giving relationship with your heavenly Father. Jesus invites you, like he invites everybody, to come to, to before their heavenly Father with their eyes wide open to say, look, I did some stuff that I'm not proud of. Like, I violated my own conscience, God, and so if you're there, I'm sure I violated some standard that you've set. Like, you just acknowledge that. 
But then you say, listen, I understand that, that Christ came to lay down his life to pay the penalty for my sin so that I could be forgiven, so that I could stand before you not condemned, so that I could have my, that weight lifted off of me and I could step into the kingdom of God to live my life in the kingdom of God filled with your spirit, knowing that you are with me, knowing that you are there, knowing that I can do life with you. That's the offer on the table before you. There really are no strings attached. It's just simply God's provided the way. Do you want to experience that? Now, three massive implications from these passages that we, or from these verses that we just read. When you step into a relationship with God, you need to know that number one, you forfeit the right to condemn yourself because you are not yours to condemn. I'll say it again. You forfeit or you give up your right to condemn yourself because you are not yours to condemn. Guilt is not the boss of you, but you are also not the boss of you. You have chosen to make someone else the boss of you, and that boss of you says, listen, you are not condemned. I have removed your sin and your guilt and your shame. He's saying, listen, next time you feel that overwhelming guilt for whatever it was that you did in your past, you just say, listen, guilt, I did it. I acknowledge it, but I have, I have brought it to my heavenly Father who has taken it from me, and because of that, I am now no longer condemned. Guilt, you're not the boss of me. Shame, you're not the boss of me. Pride, embarrassment, you're not the, the boss of me. The second massive implication from these verses is that your guilt is designed to remind you it will not define you. Going forward, your guilt will remind you. Allow it to do, if it's going to do anything, allow it to remind you, but not to define you. Yes, you did it, but you are not what you have done. God condemned sin. He did not condemn you. And this is where I hope that you will get when it comes to worship. That, and I know what this took for me to get there, right? Because you can imagine, I mean, this is not like a you, you, you thing. This is an us, us, us thing, like myself included, right? You can imagine for me to stand up here week after week and to tell you what God wants to say to you. You can imagine what it's like for me to stand up here and to tell you how to live or to advise you on how to live. Like you can imagine when my guilt comes up from the past, like, you can imagine how that feels for me in comparison with what I do for a living. But listen, your guilt, going forward, your guilt should serve as a pivot point for your worship. Your guilt, when you think of it, when you are reminded of it, when it comes back up, it should cause you to think not how guilty you are. It should cause you to remember how much you have been loved and how much you have been forgiven and how much God has given you. And you just allow that to cause you to respond in worship. One time Jesus was talking to a group of people and this woman was blessing him and the host got mad and there's kind of this thing with the host and this woman. And Jesus says, whoa, 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 listen guys, you need to understand those who have been forgiven much, they love much. And so this is what we experience during worship sometimes. Like maybe you're in here and we're singing and you look out of the corner of your eye and you just see somebody with their arms raised high and they're just worshiping God and they're just tears streaming down their face, and you think, you know, what's going on for that person? Like, they're having a moment in here. And you're right, they are having a moment. And you know why? 
Because that person has a story. Because that person has a past. Because they felt the weight, and they carried that weight around with them for a long time. But God has done something for them, and he has removed that weight, and he has set them free. And now they experience all of the fruit of the spirit of life and love and joy, and they're just grateful. And so they can't help but stand and raise their arms and worship to him, because for them, their past has become a pivot point. And number three, when we become followers of Christ, you forfeit the right to condemn others because to do so would make you a hypocrite. When you become a follower of Jesus, you forfeit your right to, to condemn other people because that would make you a hypocrite. So often we see people who are judgmental, especially the people who are really judgmental, it's like it's just obvious. They don't see it, but man, they are still carrying around some unresolved guilt. And that weight that they're carrying has evolved into anger. And it causes them, whenever, especially if somebody tries to point it out to them, then they are quick to respond with pointing out all of the stuff that is wrong with the other person and with other people and with culture, right? But when you become a follower of Jesus, you forfeit your right to condemn other people because you understand. Look, you bring your eyes wide open to your past and to your actions and to your thoughts and to what is in your heart. And people... People who do that, who come with open eyes before their Heavenly Father, know that it is incredibly difficult to condemn other people because they know what a hypocrite that would make them. Look, you are perfectly positioned to love the people that our culture says are unlovable. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are perfectly positioned to extend forgiveness to people who are not used to receiving forgiveness from other people. Listen, that... That culture, people doing that, loving people who don't deserve to be loved, that changed the world one time. And that is exactly what we're praying God would do through this community, in our community, through all of us today. That as we receive from God, we would extend that out onto the community around us and people would, would see something different in us. It wouldn't just be the, the typical assumption of what church people are like and what church people do and the condemnation and the judgment and the, the, the pushing them to the margins, that we would embrace them with love because we know God embraced us with that love. There's, these are massive implications of what God has invited us to do. So are you ready? Are you ready to stop telling yourself that same old story? Are you ready to stop having to push it down into the recesses of your heart? Are you ready to give up on the narrative? Look, I get it. I understand why we do, do it. We do it because we fear, we think that the consequences of confession and bringing it to light before God, we fear the consequences of confession more than we fear the consequences of concealment. We think that concealing our guilt will make it go away. But that's a mistake. That is not what happens. And so we need to fear concealment much more than the consequences of confession. We need to understand that God has invited us to live in a space where we are no longer condemned because we are in Christ Jesus. The summary is, my past will, will remind me. It will not define me. In fact, I want you, even if you don't think this really applies to you, will you say this out loud with me on the count of three? One, two, three. My past will remind me. It will not define me. And one last summary statement. Guilt, you're not the boss of me. Will you say that with me? One, two, three. Guilt, 
you are not the boss of me. You say, guilt, I have a relationship with God where I can find a place where I am no longer condemned. And guilt, you never offered me that. You say, shame, you never offered me that. Embarrassment, you never offered me that. And so I'm going to find my space in Christ because there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And here's some good news. If you have trouble forgiving yourself, you've already been forgiven. God's already forgiven you. He's just inviting you to step into it, to come before him and to accept the forgiveness that he has been waiting your entire life to offer you. All right, as we wrap up, here's what I want to do. I want to invite the band to come back up. This song that we sing around here on occasion is so good. I love the words of this song so much. And so when we were kind of working on this service, we talked about trying to create space at the end of our service where you could just sit and let these words kind of wash over you and kind of serve as your testimony, if you will. So what I want to do is I want to pray for you, and then I want to invite you to just stay seated, at least for the first part of this song, and to just think about the words of this and the lyrics of this song, and just think about how true these are of your own life and your own story. Let me pray for you. God, we recognize that we are all guilty, that we have all failed to live up to the standard that you have set. Lord, we failed to live up to our own standard, let alone yours. And yet, Lord, we recognize and we understand that you offer us the freedom and the invitation to come before you and to find a place where there is no condemnation, that in Christ we can be set free. You will lift the weight off of us. We can find a place where guilt will no longer be the boss of us because we choose to make you the boss of us. So, Lord, in response, we live with gratitude in our hearts. We live grateful and we live free. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, and everyone who agreed said, amen.